0: Today, we are continuing on with the book, A Hunter-Gatherer's Guide to the 21st Century by Brett Weinstein and Heather Hying. Today, we'll dig into what food, sleep, sex, and parenthood look like in the modern world, contrasted with what our bodies know from evolution. You've found the Self as Lab podcast. My name is David Hart. What is the best diet for humans? We are obsessed by what is the best diet for humans. Vast amounts of communication on the internet are dedicated to trying to convince you the benefits of some new, narrowly focused diet that some mad celebrity is now espousing. The implications of diets such as raw, vegan or paleo diets is that there is a rigid, fixed and universal answer to what we should eat. The fact is demographics and age will change what food is best for you. Cultural differences, based on geography, may impact diet, such as the fact that only certain populations can generally tolerate milk as an adult. Let's return to the Omega Principle, which posits that cultural traits, like cuisine, should be presumed to be adaptive and will impact genes of an individual. As a basic rule, we should be eating real food, something that is recognisable as once a living thing. Our sense of taste evolved when meat, fat, salt and sugar were rare. Our sense of taste told us to seek these out as the energy reward for consumption of these foods was high. Until recently if food tasted good it was good for you. Now our senses are gamed for hyper novelty tricking us into eating processed foods and too much of them. There is no universal diet that is best suited to all humans. This is easily demonstrated by looking to the Inuit in the north who survive on a diet of high fat and protein with almost no carbohydrates and the diets of cultures around the equator that tend to be much more focused on carbohydrates. These reductionist diets also presume food is just for survival. Like sex, it has expanded beyond its original purpose. They ignore the connection to friends and family that food facilitates. They do not allow for celebration or grief, and they flatten the richness of the human experience. We've been using tools since before we split from our chimp-like ancestors 6 million years ago. 3.3 million years, we were crafting and using stone tools. 2.5 million years, we were killing animals with stone tools and extracting marrow from their bones. We may have been controlling fire for 1.5 million years. Fire was absolutely transformational for early humans. It provided warmth and light, warning and protection. We could boil water, eradicate pests, dry clothes, and temper metal. We could see each other at night and extend our waking hours. Cooking food reduces the risks of illness from parasites and pathogens. It can detoxify some plants and reduces spoilage. The biggest advantage though is that cooking increases calories released from food. To get sufficient calories on a raw diet, humans had to chew for five hours every day. Once we had mastered cooking, there was more time for other pursuits, developing crafts, for telling stories. It also acted as a social lubricant, pulling people together for celebrations and rituals. Fire was an amplifier of conscious exploration, both internally and externally. Internally, it facilitated long conversations into the night that resulted in discourse, collaboration and the development of ideas. Externally, we used fire to explore places that were previously unreachable, to travel to colder places, preserve food for longer journeys, provide warmth in colder regions, to ward off enemies and to provide comfort against an unforgiving world. Domesticating food. All food, except for culinary minerals like salt, is organic meaning that it evolved with interests of its own. The only foods produced by an organism that were expected to be eaten are milk for the feeding of young mammals, fruit for the dispersion of seeds, and nectar for the pollination of flowers. That is it. Plants and animals don't want to be eaten, but we've convinced them to work with us. Corn, potato and wheat are good examples of organisms that have been selectively bred and cultivated to suit our needs and consequently they are thriving as a result of a better fit to the environments we've imposed on them. The same can be said for domesticated animals. They have vastly increased numbers compared to what would have existed in the wild resulting in a decreased chance of extinction. They are co-evolving with us. Loaves and Fishes Why is it that the story of Jesus feeding the masses with loaves and fishes has persisted for so long? How important is agriculture and fishing to our past? Agriculture was invented 12,000 years ago, several times simultaneously around the world. This led to a shift to permanent settlements, a sedentary lifestyle, greater individual specialisation, expansion of trade skills and the development of arts and sciences. It supported a more efficient economy, leading to the development of politics, wealth disparity and changes to traditional gender roles. It seems that the consumption of fish and other coastal foods may have been instrumental in the development of our large brains. Fishing has historically been far easier and safer than hunting large land mammals. Hunter-gatherers expanded naturally along coastlines for thousands of years. In an evolutionary blink of an eye, we've exploded into a population of 7 billion, surviving largely on intensive, unsustainable farming of the land, with little direct contact with the food produced. In the modern world, there is now little appreciation for the complexity of food production and a fair amount of hubris about what is required to grow food and sustain a population. Nature is not wasteful. If you think you see waste, look again. There is most likely a long-term strategy that is not clearly visible. Take the opulent feasts that occur in Madagascar, a country for the most part where people don't have enough to eat on a regular basis. The carrying capacity of a population, how many people it can feed, can vary wildly harvest to harvest depending on how much food is produced. If birth rates track the harvests, in half of all years there would not be enough food to go around resulting in conflict and famine. A solution is to spend the excess resources on a feast that results in more cohesion of the group rather than more babies. This helps the population avoid the calamity created by variants in the harvest. So what to do next? Shop at the edges of the supermarket. This is where the whole organisms are. The stuff in the middle of the supermarket is not food. Avoid GMOs. We don't know the long-term impact of these on humans. Probably sterility, cancer and a pathetic acceptance of the invasion of the Kardashians into our lives. Respect your food aversions and cravings. Your genes are giving you a clue, listen to them. Expose children to a diverse range of whole foods. Consider your ethnicity and look at your culinary tradition as a guide for your diet. Don't reduce food to its components. Don't take fish oil, eat a fish. Make food more scarce. Most things in the wild are hungry all the time. It is not natural for you to be satiated every waking hour. Practice going hungry. Food is social lubrication. Don't let one dimensional diets destroy social situations. They are unsustainable, they will destroy your soul and you'll be a pain in the ass to have over for dinner. I. Need. Sleep. Every animal sleeps. It turns out that it is impossible to build an eye that is optimized for both day and night. Day animals are diurnal. Night animals are nocturnal. If an animal's eyes are optimized for the in-between times, they are crepuscular. No matter what the solution is, there are trade-offs. An animal that handled all light conditions but did it poorly would not successfully compete. It would be eaten by something that figured out how to optimise for one of the other states. Whatever light condition you optimise for, you will still need to sleep. Returning to us, there is an extremely long history, think millions of years, of diurnal creatures in our lineage. Sleep saves energy and our body rests. But what about our brain? We've figured out through our evolution a neat trick that makes use of our energy-hungry brain during sleep. We can run scenarios creating and playing fragments of movies called dreams. This is a tremendous advantage. To be able to run simulations to see what happens in different scenarios, to find out what the outcome may be, we don't have to act out everything in real life. Our brains can run simulations while we are conscious, awake, and unconscious, asleep. Sleep can broadly be divided into two types. REM sleep, rapid eye movement, This is when your eyes flitter around like crazy and your body is paralyzed. No, this isn't a horror film. This is really one of your sleep states. And non-REM sleep, the deepest form of which is slow-wave sleep. Only mammals and birds have REM sleep. Slow-wave sleep is more ancient. During slow-wave sleep, memories are stored and old and redundant information is cut away. Skills that have been learned during the day are encoded. REM sleep is when you dream. Once evolutionary selection discovered the utility of using the mind to run simulations during body dormancy, it became integral to the development of all our systems. Novelty and sleep disruption Electric lights, air travel, noise pollution, and working night shift. None of these occurred in any sense during our evolution. They are new intrusions on our nighttime rituals. The suprachiasmatic nucleus in our brain keeps track of where we are at in the day with respect to the photo period, the length of time in the 24 hour period where there is light. Before electric lights, we never experienced light after dark of the intensity and duration we are now able to produce. Our eyes do an incredible job of adjusting to intensity, so we are ill-equipped to be able to tell when the light is actually high intensity. Daylight tends towards the blue end of the light spectrum, moonlight and firelight towards the red end. Indoor lighting is brighter than moonlight and firelight, and far bluer than sunlight. It has been shown that indoor lighting can interfere with circadian rhythms and hormonal cycles, but the interference is highly variant between individuals. LED lights are even worse, having an even more intense blue light component. Along with all the LEDs from every electronic device in the house, they are signalling to your brain that it is the middle of the day. If you or anyone in your house is suffering from a debilitating psychological disorder or cannot sleep, eradicating the daylight spectrum lights from your night environment could make a world of difference. It obviously also has a massive impact on all sorts of animals, affecting sleep cycles, germination, mating seasons, molting, and embryonic development. We should take the time to consider the implications of light pollution on the natural world and take steps to control and reduce where possible. Allow the sun to set your sleep-wake pattern and wake up without help. If you need an alarm to wake you up, you are doing something wrong. Avoid caffeine eight hours before bed. Seems obvious, doesn't it? Develop a ritual in advance of sleep. Turn down the lights, shut down the screens, take a hot shower, that sort of thing. Spend time outside every day. Early morning sunlight will synchronise your body clock, making it easier to fall asleep. Keep your bedroom dark and use a red light for reading before bed. Restrict outdoor blue spectrum light in society to reduce light pollution. This will help the rest of the organisms in our ecosystem if we stop spewing out volumes of blue light in all directions and at all hours of the night. Sex and gender. The roles of men and women have been distinct for most of human history. The belief that all gender norms are regressive is a mistake as men and women have worked in partnership throughout our evolutionary history against a cruel and dark world. Today we live in a world where both sexes have broken down boundaries previously thought impossible. Women and men are not confined to their traditional roles and this is a great thing. This does not mean, however, that men and women are the same at a population-wide level. Take height for example. If population Y is taller on average than population Z, this does not mean that all of Y is taller than all of Z. We seem to want sameness between sexes, to make us feel good, but this is a shallow comfort. Men and women make different choices based on their interests, and can be motivated by different goals. To ignore differences and demand uniformity is a different kind of sexism. Sex. The Deep History. We have been sexual beings for at least 500 million years. It may even be a couple of billion years. Sexual reproduction is costly for organisms. You need to find the right mate, the right time of year, you need to tend to and rear the offspring, and only 50% of your genes get passed on. The reason sexual reproduction stuck around is because it is a more dynamic and hence better fit to the dynamic external environment than asexual reproduction. If you could clone yourself, asexual reproduction, This would be a successful strategy if the future was exactly the same as the past. Mixing up the genotype with someone else's helps discover better combinations that may survive into the future. The differences between men and women extend beyond reproduction, with different disease risk profiles, different brain structures and different personalities. In general, at a population level, women are more altruistic, trusting and compliant and more prone to depression. Men are more prone to ADHD. Women are more prone to anxiety. Men prefer to work with things, and women prefer to work with people. Sex Changes, Sex Roles The usual role for the female across species is to choose a mate and raise the children. Males put on a display and the female chooses. In the vast majority of species, females are the limiting sex because they have to invest so heavily in the offspring. Males must compete for access to females. Males therefore tend to be larger, elephant seals, more aggressive, woolly monkeys, gaudier, peacocks, louder, frogs, or more melodious, mockingbirds. Sex role reversal, or gender switching, is not the same as changing sex. No sex has ever been changed, but behaviour, call it sex role or gender, is highly variable. We can change behaviour and are doing so as the traditional roles are changed. Sex does not equal gender. Sex is defined by our hardware. Gender is the software that runs on top of the hardware. Gender can be fluid. Sex is fixed. Stating the obvious, some of the traditional gender roles are not outdated. Women on average are more likely to nest and nurture. Men are more likely to defend and explore. The difference between sexes are found in babies and across cultures. Neonate girls spend more time looking at faces. Boys spend more time looking at things. In the modern world, most men and women prefer not to be restricted to any particular domain. There will still be differences due to sex preferences, and no parity will be achieved. Asking people to believe that there are no differences creates a more deranged worldview for all participants of society. Why do human lady people have persistent breasts? Breasts occur at puberty, and they persist for the rest of a woman's life. No other species of primate have breasts that persist when there are no babies around. Human breasts are sexually selected. Effectively, they are advertisements to men. Concealment of ovulation has also been selected for, and encourages sex for pleasure and bonding. Humans also have a partial sex role reversal with the adornment and display of women. Remember, in nature, it is usually the men on display and the women choosing. Division of Labor The Division of Labor makes sense as an efficient use of time to allow more time for the development of skills, culture, for play and for sex. Men have been more likely to be hunters of large game, women to be gatherers of plants and smaller animals. Without birth control, women would spend most of their time pregnant or breastfeeding. Breastfeeding itself is a form of birth control, typically stopping the woman from getting pregnant while she is still breastfeeding. With the rise of agriculture, sex roles became more constrained. There was now more food, and with nutritional demands more easily met, breastfeeding wasn't required for as long in the child's early development. This pushed the birth rates up. Women now had more babies, which resulted in a decrease in women's roles in society. They weren't able to contribute as much to the culture because they were stuck at home looking after 11 kids. Sexual strategies. It takes a lot to bring a baby into the world, and absent monogamy and biparental care, men don't contribute much. It is interesting to look at what the different sexes are looking for in a mating partner. A cross cultural study showed that women were more interested in mates with high earning potential. This makes sense because women are in a vulnerable state while child rearing and need to be cared for. Men were more interested in mates who are young and physically attractive. These qualities typically act as proxies for fertility. Men are more concerned with someone who can successfully bear and raise children. Their ability to earn does not significantly enter the man's evolutionary calculation. There has, until recently, always been the question of paternity. How could the male know that the offspring was his? This drove the evolution of jealousy and is why mate guarding is far more prevalent in men. This is also why men have wanted to control the reproductive activities of women to try and ensure certainty of paternity. This setup leads broadly to three reproductive strategies. Number one, partner and invest long term. Number two, force reproduction on an unwilling mate. And number three, force nobody but invest little beyond short term sexual activity. Women have not had much flexibility historically in their strategy of choice. Typically it is strategy one, partner and invest long term. This is best for society, children, women and most men. Strategy two is rape and it is an indefensible strategy. Obviously this is not honourable or desirable for individuals or society. The third strategy is effectively one night stands. Women are now adopting this strategy with birth control and the current wave of dating apps. Women adopting the worst traits of men is not evidence of equality and freedom. Engaging in the short game has diminished the sexual power of women and obscured the risks and long-term cost of this strategy. Pornography and Reductionism Sex is interactional and emergent. The proxy for the thing is not the thing. There is information in watching others, but pornography essentially initiates strategy three, which wants to get straight to sex. Porn reduces us to our parts and puts a premium on extremity for attention. One way to think of it is as a kind of sexual autism, repetitive behaviour and atypical sensitivity to sensual inputs. Porn reduces sex to a commodity, with a narrow focus on orgasm. People who have been shaped by the use of porn have trouble forming relationships and they have difficulty reading or interpreting a partner's responses. Porn flattens human sexuality and makes one of the most incredible things in the human experience mechanical, repetitive and degrading. Well, what to do next? Avoid sex without commitment. Do not succumb to social pressure to embrace easy sex. Keep children away from porn. Can't believe this needs to be stated, but yes, keep them away from porn. Recognise that our differences contribute to our collective strength. Men and women are evolutionary partners, creating dynamic partnerships that produce offspring with a better chance of evolutionary fitness. If we were the same, evolution would have selected for only one sex. Parenthood and Relationship Love is a state of the emotional mind that causes one to prioritise someone or something else external as an extension of the self. It is intimate inclusion. Love first evolved between mother and child and then expanded to partners and all extensions of family. Following this expanded again to those who would have shared intense experiences, such as war. Eventually love was abstracted to such concepts as country and God. It began appearing 200 million years ago when mammals diverged from reptiles. Milk being produced from the evolved mammal solved the problem of immunity and nutrition, This led to emotional involvement adapting from this shared time between the mother and child. This bonding resulted in mothers being more protective of children and willing to risk their lives for them. The risk calculation to yourself, offspring and species is performed intuitively through emotions and love is the ultimate amalgam of these emotions. Care. Love has evolved in mammals and the vast majority of birds. When children are fed and protected by parents, it means that they can evolve to helplessness. This allows for massive flexibility in programming through cultural transmission and allows for rapid behavioral adaption to the environment. Plasticity emerges in life that is not fully programmed by the genome. Cooperative breeding emerges when rates of promiscuity are low and resources are not monopolized. Differences in size between males and females in animals, with males being the larger of the two, is a strong indicator of polygyny in vertebrate species, polygyny being one male with multiple female partners. Men are about 15% larger than females and physically stronger indicating that our ancestors were polygynous, with mating males having multiple female partners. Monogamy has the greatest potential for cooperation and fairness. In primates, monogamy is also correlated with the largest relative brain size. With no monogamy, females are burdened with all the child-rearing responsibilities. Due to a limited number of males having access to most of the females, the rest of the unlucky males will mate with almost anything. With monogamy, males become more like females. They become more choosy and less aggressive because nearly everyone has a mate. Mammals have a harder time evolving stable monogamy due to the longer gestation period, resulting in males being unsure if they are the father, and generally not sticking around if in doubt. Once the male decides to stick around, it is useful for them to help out, and it results in better outcomes for the offspring, and more offspring can be supported. It appears as human babies got more helpless, the pair bonding got tighter, which then facilitated love between partners. IMPLICATIONS OF MONOGAMY IN HUMANS Mating systems shift as ecological conditions change. If resources are in surplus then monogamy is favoured. When polygyny is on the rise, there is an increase in sexually frustrated young men who are willing to take huge risks to get access to a mate. Absent birth control, promiscuity is good for men and dangerous for women. Birth control made it not so dangerous for women, but reduced the value of women to men, resulting in men being less likely to commit. Yes, it is a lot more sex, but it is junk sex with no depth. Women may consciously want to have sex without commitment, but are wired to fall in love with men and aim for strong pair bonding due to the high cost of having babies. If women behave like men, the system breaks down so that everyone behaves like men at their most crappy and adolescent. Monogamy creates more competent adults, reduces violence and warfare, due to less sexually frustrated men, and fosters cooperation. Do you really want your racist grandfather living forever? Imagine if we could solve aging, fix our hardware and live for centuries. What about our software? The mind, in this case, is the software and the hardware is the brain. To not fill our brains with too much information, we need to forget most of it. At advanced ages, we have a fragmented cognition. How much worse would this get if individuals lived longer? What out-of-date values would corrupt and derange the present? The deep evolutionary solution to this problem is our descendants. Remember the human niche is niche-switching, and niches can be incredibly short. Culture passed on from elders allows for programming of the offspring to adapt and transition. The idea is for parents to upload their information and skills to their kids, then they can refine what needs updating and move forward with a new map of reality. Preservation of individuals would interrupt the primary mechanism by which humans innovate. Individuals must die so that humans can thrive. Grief, that crushing pain in your chest. Grief has evolved in highly social organisms with parental care. The modern approach tends to overemphasise metrics around death and we are often encouraged not to see the body. Grief is our brain recalibrating the world with a central piece missing. Grief is the downside of love. Reconnect with the process of grief. Understand that burying the grief I'm sorry, that's a terrible pun by refusing to engage with the process will result in worse outcomes for you. Grief is a natural and necessary path that takes time and is unique to each individual. What to do next. Take time to grieve in a way that feels right and spend time with the body of a loved one after they die. Avoid dating apps. Encourage alloparenting of your children. Children with both parents, extended family and friends involved have better outcomes. Breastfeed your infants. This will facilitate a deeper bond with your children. Right. Right. You now know why you can't sleep, why your sex sucks, why your food is poisoning you, and why you are probably failing as a parent. You've got notes now, you've got actions. Shut down the phone, go lie in bed, and think about what you've done. Next post will bring this one home, with notes on childhood, school, and becoming an adult. If you've enjoyed this so far, go get the book. Read it and share it with your friends. Remember this is just a sketch, to be used as a tool to find something new to read. If you've got any questions on this book, or suggestions for any books you'd like to see notes on, hit me up on Twitter at TheDavidHeart. To read the writing behind this podcast, subscribe on Substack. Connect with me on Twitter. If you think this thing is worth something, consider supporting me on Patreon. Thanks for listening.